Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Exchanges Discourse podcast. I am Dr. Gareth J. Johnson. I'm the Managing Editor-in-Chief of Exchanges, the interdisciplinary research journal which is published at the Institute of Advanced Study, based at the University of Warwick. Oh, really great to have you here today. In this episode, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Mark Redman, who is a Principal Academic in Media Education in the Faculty of Media and Communication at Bournemouth University. Mark published an article with Exchanges in Volume 8.1, which was called The Comforting Nonsense of Creativity. So I'll be talking with him about that, his work, and obviously his thoughts about his publication experiences in general. Welcome, Mark, and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Gareth. Thank you for having me. Oh, I think the pleasure is all ours. I always like to kick off by asking um, our guests on the show, um, you know, what are you up to at the moment? What's your kind of current research focus? Yeah, it's, I, I always find that hard to answer because I think at worst, I'm still a dilettante. You know, <laughs> I kind of dabble in lots of pots. Um, at best, I might, I might call what I do interdisciplinary, mm. but um, I'm not sure that I'm a genuine interdisciplinary researcher. But I guess everything that I do is, is kind of underpinned by the same thing, which is mm. this interest in how truths are produced about the social world. I'm sure everybody could could say something about that, but I'm interested in how you know language and images just produce these things that are not merely neutral representations, but they contribute to that kind of mythic construction of um, of what we believe in about mm. the social world. So a little while ago, it's a few years ago now, I, I edited a collection called Mediated Pedagogies, which was mm. about representations of teaching and learning, which is really about you know, I encouraged my authors to focus on how myths about pedagogy mm. were produced through these representations and, and got some really interesting responses to that. I'm currently just scoping a project, really, which I'm calling The Ethics of Pretending, which we can Ooh, come back to, if you like, which is about the processes through which casting directors for film and television mm make decisions about diversity. And I mm. think there are some really, I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm interested in the what I'm calling the discourses of rationalization because everyone's aware of the need for diversity and the political debates around diversity but um, how do these things actually transpire in practice so I guess they're kind of underpinned by the same motivation mm. it, you know how are these how are, how is the world the social world rationalized mm. explained represented and understood I'm just thinking about what might give it a bit more heft. You know, I'm thinking about um, my approach, I guess, is what Slavoj Žižek would call a hermeneutic approach. So mm. when he says, what's, what's true philosophy? It's not about, is that true? Is this true? It's what do we mean when we say that is true? Mm. Which is, you know, potentially a cop-out. It's a bit of a sidestep. <laughs> it's, a, it's an oblique angle on things anyway. Love it, love it. <laughs> well, obviously, which leads us very neatly on to uh, the piece you published with us in Exchanges back in um, Volume 8.1 on the, the comforting nonsense of creativity. Now, I have to admit, when I, I read that, I loved this article because, I mean, it's, it spoke to me on so many levels. I mean, I, during my own kind of PhD journey, I, I always remember reading a book by Latour, on Act Network Theory, mm. where he spent the middle of the book arguing with an imagining version of himself about actor network theory and more or less proposing that it's a waste of time studying it or using it. And I just came away sort of in line, but quite frustrated that there was no definitive answer he was representing within it. Yeah. Uh, so I read your piece, just a little bit of resonance for me. 
Oh, well, I'm, I'm really glad you liked it. Thank you. Um, I mean, I feel like I've been circling around these ideas for a long time. And my PhD, which is a few years ago now, was very much focused on the way that creativity was mobilized in education policy. Mm, mm. So the way that it became a kind of shibboleth at one point and the way that it was reified in policy contexts and documents. But actually, um, when you start to, to pick away at it, there's, there's very little tangible there. So mm. I think it's one of those really fascinating things. We've got this enormous emotional investment in it. And it can be translated into funding for projects and certainly in science. There's masses of funding going into um, fMRIs eyes and things like that, where we look for the, the creativity centers in the brain. But actually, it is always already this cultural construct. And it's always gone through a process of interpretation and evaluation. And usually you find that that there are all of these proxies for creativity from which the existence of this magical thing called creativity is being inferred. So I think that's why I find it really fascinating, still find it fascinating. And, um, And my approach to it, I guess, is entirely consistent with my approach to everything else, as I was mm. just saying. But one of the things I, I really li- liked about the piece as well was, like I say, it was this, you know, you were looking at um, Joseph Lehrer's uh, his works in, in particular. Oh, kind of, you, you Jonah, yes. To Jonah, sorry, yes. And I, I just, I, I thought it was really interesting, kind of taking through a, a book like that, critically as a piece and unpick it, but then with that greater relevance. In relation to exchanges in this piece, I mean, I was really interested because, you know, we have a lot of folks who are haven't published much, and I thought this was an absolutely beautiful example of a, a way you can take a piece, look at something within your own research framing, but actually expand it to a wider audience. And I, I have to say, oh, we don't think we get enough pieces like this. You know, if you want to write about your subject, find something like this that challenges it you want to talk about in a broader sense, because we are, we're trying to publish to a, a broader audience. So, yeah, yeah. sorry, egregious flattery there, but you know. <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> I can't get enough of that. No, I'm, I'm really glad. It, um, I thought the Jonah Lehrer book was a really interesting jumping off point, because mm-hmm. I remember when it was published, he was on all of the Radio 4 shows, mm-hmm. he was on the start of the week, and there were lots of discussions, and, you know, here's someone who's really nailed it at last. And then there was the backlash when it turned out that he'd actually falsified some of his quotes. Mm-hmm. But what I thought was interesting is that that's not really the point. What he did was contribute to these rather wonderful, seductive fictions around creativity. It's not... I don't really care that he made up quotes by Bob Dylan. It's, mm. you know, it's more the stuff about how he's trying to convince us that this bit of Bob Dylan's brain mm. was lighting up at mm. the point where he he came up with the idea for a, like a Rolling Stone. So I thought it was, I just, the debate around it was really fascinating. And, and when you look at the papers, because this is, I did actually go and find the papers that he talks about. Mm. And, and of course, he glosses them and he uses them selectively, but it's really the, the storytelling around them that I think is really interesting. The way he creates these heroes, you know, there's, there's one guy, um, it's not Betancourt, it's the other one, but um, West, mm. who is this sort of heroic figure in the science of the city and he mobilises the metaphors around physics. It is this sort of tumbling seductive rhetoric and that's why i thought that that was that was my kind of lever Mm. back into creativity and into the the scientific papers Mm. as well and i think as well what it really what it reveals is that we're 
social scientist. I don't think of myself as a scientist of any any colour, actually. But the hard sciences are as much characterised by storytelling and language and rhetoric as anything else. I would agree. I mean, um, my other half um, works in the, the the hard sciences, and we were having a conversation only just not last night. We were out walking about the whole idea of objectivity and kind of positivistic science with numbers. But at the same time, it's the story she's telling about these numbers that's important. It's about, you know, how you are selling that to your funders, to the people you're working mm-hmm. with, to the, you know, at the end of the day, the people you're publishing with. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a great little crossover there. Yeah, yeah. But if, I'm glad you liked it. I'll try and write more. Oh, please do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about publishing, obviously, I mean, an academic authorship is never something far from our mind. I mean, what, what, what are you working on anything exciting at the moment? Well, I've got my usual sort of um, storage box of shame of things that I should have finished <laughs> a long, long time ago. So I'm, I must finish it this year. I'm writing about, unusually for me, this, was, this involved a bit of empirical research. Mm. And I talked to groups of, tra- well, one group of trainee teachers at three points in a year. And before I talked to them, I asked them to watch some, some films that I'd mm. already selected about teaching. And the idea was to try to elicit a kind of conversation about how they related, what they were doing in their training to these representations of teaching and training. So it was, you know, normally I kind of try to look at found data, Mm. but in this case I was provoking a response. Mm. Mm. But it was really interesting to, to hear how they spoke about that shifting identity into a quite offended way, the Channel 4, comedy drama teachers which i showed towards the end because mm. of the the lack of professionalism and at certain points they would say gosh what have i become and it was it was that that i was looking mm. for so i was really glad that um, anyway i haven't written that up yet i've got i've done my uh, i've done my coding yes um you know i've gone for you know my massive love. en vivo sheets. i oh, love a bit of en vivo <laughs> <laughs> but i haven't actually haven't actually written written it up yet mm. so there's that what else? Am I? Um, you know how in filmmaking actors mm. talk about doing, you know, one for the studio and one for me and one for the pension. Well, I'm doing one for me at the moment, which is a book chapter. Oh, yes. About a, an 80s sitcom called Ever Decreasing Circles. Oh, which, I love it. Lo- know it well. You know it? I know it very well, okay. yes. <laughs> All right. Which I, I keep trying to resurrect, you know, because I, I don't think enough people know know how good it is. Anyway. It, it, it is a work of genius. It really is. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think, think so. it, for, for Richard Bryars, I think it's the pinnacle of his kind of yeah. dramatic career, you know, but even though it's a comedy. I mean, the way he I plays agree. it is more yeah. drama. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's great to find a fellow fan. <laughs> so this is for a book called UK Comedy Cultures, mm. and I'm, I've mobilised this thesis about territorialism. So it's sort of loosely post-colonial, but it's, mm. it's about how... Martin Bryce, the Richard Bryars character, manages the boundaries around his domain and the terrifying otherness that lies mm. beyond. But interestingly, the most, you know, his nemesis, Paul Ryman, is, is an impeccable pillar of the establishment. So his, he has to manage this otherness in really interesting ways and has to keep negotiating different positions. So that's what that chapter's about. But like I said, that's that's really one for me. Oh, that sounds really good. I shall look forward to reading that. <laughs> okay, I shall. I'll send you a link when it's Oh, please done. do, yes. Um, but I'm also working on a, just starting to um, start a conversation with a filmmaker, a documentary maker mm. called John Bergen, who made a film at the end of the 80s called Memory of Berlin, 
Mm. John and I worked together at the BBC a long time ago, so I had a, an in already, mm. but there was a call for papers about the essay film, and it just occurred to me that we might do something interesting through a conversation. Mm. So mm. I could write my essay about memory of Berlin, but I thought, let's think about what it's doing, and especially from this vantage point, you know, more than 20 years later, or a long time later. And I think it's a great example of autoethnography in action. Mm. Mm. At the time, John didn't even know what autoethnography was. Mm. So I think there's a kind of intuitive autoethnography at work there. Um, and now that we're more more mature gentlemen, shall we mm. say, it'll be really interesting to, to look back and mm. tease out what kind of theoretical and underpinnings were there implicitly. But also a bit of an experiment doing a journal article in the form of a conversation. Absolutely, yeah. Thinking about the form, because um, it can become so tediously monologic, can't mm. it? is an attempt to make it more dialogic. I have always enjoyed articles when they are dialogues. Um, I always remember when I was reading one, it was a, a dialogue with Foucault when I was doing, again, doing, doing my, mm. my doctorate. And I think it spoke to me more than his other works yeah. because it just seems so much clearer coming out as a discussion, as a dialogue, yeah. than something that was, as you say, in a, a prose format, <laughs> which can sort of... Yes. So there's a really nice one where he's, it might be the one where he's talking to Habermas. And they're it coming at things be, yes. from very different directions. And it's, you're right, they, they test each other. Mm. And if someone's writing a book, of course, they're not being challenged on every page or after every paragraph. Or well, what do you mean when you say this? Or yeah, exactly. isn't that underpinned by this idea? So yeah, I completely agree with you. I think <laughs> dialogue is the way to go. Absolutely. Also thinking about publishing, I mean, one of the questions I always ask all the guests who come on mm. here is about the horror stories, because I tend to collect these. Is there a particular publishing horror story you've had over the years? And I have listened to some of your podcasts and heard some of those horror stories, which are genuinely horrific. I mean, mm. I haven't got anything specifically horrific like yeah. that. I mean, when I was editing a collection, I was my nerves were shredded when mm. authors tested the deadlines to the limit. I was going to say, as an editor, I can certainly sympathise with that one. <laughs> okay, yeah. You would think that would make me better at meeting my own deadlines, but I also test them to the limit, unfortunately. I think reviewers' comments can really be quite wounding sometimes. And I've, and I've just been thinking about that. I edit a journal as well, which I have. It used to be a subscription print journal. The publisher was bought by a larger publisher. It wasn't viable for them. Mm. I've, I've actually acquired it. I think I own mm. the intellectual property. So I've relaunched it as open access, no NPCs. It's, you know, rather like your model, which I like think to is, hear it. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the reviewing model, so, so maybe there's potential here to look at the reviewing model. I think the double blind reviewing model kind of licenses some reviewers to, to mm. troll in a way it unleashes their inner troll and we are supposed to be in this business of knowledge production and sharing and collegiality and that doesn't fit sometimes so and i've got a paper that i i didn't submit just because the reviews on it were so scathing I think Ouch. I, i'll bring it out i'll dust it off yeah but i don't think it was great but it wasn't that. <laughs> i know when i'm reviewing things myself I, I'm always at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, make sure I'm writing something. If I got this, it wouldn't make me just throw my PC out the window at this point. Mm. You know? And I have reviewed some terrible papers. There's things that I, I've mm. read and I've got, this is just appalling. But I'm always trying to say something in a way, well, okay, this is where it is now. There must be mm. some value in this. How can we take it from what it is 
to where it could yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not yeah. I'm not going to win any points if I'm terse or aggressive with it. <laughs> no, no, no. And uh, and I I just wonder where that comes from. I like do you know the journal participations by mm. um, Martin Barker is the mm. editor. He has well I think pioneered a really nice open reviewing policy mm. where the author is known to the reviewers and mm. then when the comments are provided the reviewer's name is known to the authors mm. to the author so i think that you know it's a little bit like being anonymized online you know would you would you say this if the person yeah. you were saying it to yeah. knew who you were and there's a kind of transparency and an integrity and an openness about that i really like i haven't implemented it in my own journal yet it's um because it is brave and progressive and i think well i need to get the board to agree to it and yeah so maybe we need to think about those kinds of things we know that the double blind process doesn't guarantee quality no. in any case no. so but the reviewing process if we if we are committed to contributing to knowledge and nurturing young researchers or new researchers and not necessarily young i wasn't particularly young when I did my PhD. I mean, either, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe that's something we need to, we need to consider. Lovely. In which case, Mark, my last questions then, because obviously we are a journal primarily, you know, we often try and aim for early career researchers, which is why we do get a lot of folks whose work mm. could do with a bit of uplifting. I mean, what's that one piece of advice you'd give to someone then who's uh, coming to publishing for the first time? Um, it, this is probably very obvious, but there's a bit of doing your homework, finding finding the right place to publish, looking for familiar names in the editorial board, being prepared to send a speculative email to an editor and saying, look, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Would this, would this fit mm. the agenda? Would this fit the remit of your journal? Trying to get into that dialogue straight away, trying not to see the journal as this sort of monolithic mm. edifice of judgment and censure because... I know some of them do operate like that and pride themselves on the amount of rejections that they they make, but they shouldn't be like that. So I think that's that's probably good advice. I would encourage them to look for open access journals, but be wary of those that charge article processing charges. So yeah, and trying to yeah, I, I would really encourage them to support open access. But there are lots of flavours of open access, so Absolutely, don't be exploited yes. by those that are going to charge you $400 to publish your article. I mean, we're, oh. we're all complicit in this bizarre industry which has been criticised, and yet we still do it, you know? Mm. We know what we're doing, yet we still do it, where say, academics you know, supply their labour and their content for free, and then we buy it back again via our libraries. Oh, don't, don't get me on my soapbox about that one. I've been for quite a while. <laughs> it's, it's what got me into research in the first place. So. Right. So, yeah, you, you know, if you're, if you're starting out, the, the key thing is to get into that early dialogue with the, with the editor of a journal. And, and I think most editors are happy to do that. And we'd much rather say, yes, this is perfect, or with a tweak it would be perfect, or no, try this one instead. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, on that note then, Mark, I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a genuine pleasure to chat to you. I've really enjoyed that. Thank you. I've enjoyed it too, and uh, I appreciate the invitation. And, um, yeah, it's great. It's been a really good experience. Thank you. My thanks to Mark for joining us, and obviously you can read his article in full, along with all the other ones there, on the Exchange's Journal website. Next time, I'm going to take a look at our most recently published issue and highlight what's in it. 
But for now, I am Dr. Gareth J. Johnson, your host for this Exchanges Discourse podcast. Remember, you can always find out more about our journal at exchanges.warwick.ac.uk or on Twitter at exchangesiAS. Always keen to have new authors publishing with us, so have a look if you'd like to write us an article. Obviously, if you've got a question for me for the podcast or you want to discuss a potential submission, you can reach me directly via exchangesjournal at warwick.ac.uk. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to like and share this episode, and obviously subscribe to make sure you get all our future ones as well.